Blog Talk Radio. From Studio 111 via Radio Saigon and simulcast across the country on blogtalkradio.com and later bflow360.com, this is Fanatic Radio, America's premier sports music program live and direct, brought to you by 1-800-Flowers, my gardener Ben Florence, back at it again with Bflow. How was your week in the nation's capital? Uh, Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, it was uh, it was a relatively low key week, as uh, the sports world that envelops us every Friday afternoon completely and utterly hit the fan this week. So it's 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 been certainly interesting, to say the least. Yeah, I had, uh, a great start to my week. If you sort of date back last weekend, uh, was at Texas Motor Speedway working the Red Bull Air Race World Championships. Fantastic. Which was probably one of the coolest events I've ever been at because basically it was sort of the new and improved it's the new age in motorsports because you know, obviously there's those that love the open wheel and stock cars, then there's those like mo- like motorcycles, but then there's also the plane enthusiasts. And apparently not only the fact that I love it, it was something new and cool, but the uh the amount of pressure that these guys go through when it's um, guys in like their 40s and 50s under 10 G's of of force when they do sort of their reverse barrel rolls is incredible because basically doing some research on it it's the average is about 8 G's in flying those planes which is double what it is in a roller coaster, and of course, Flo. Have you, are you a big fan of roller coasters? Uh, actually, I'm not. I, uh, for as much as long as I can remember, I've uh, been far from a roller coaster kind of guy. So I guess I will not be signing up for the uh, the Red Bull Air Race anytime <laughs> soon. Well, I'm the same. I haven't been on a roller coaster since since uh, high school, so I'm not one to talk. I do know that my <laughs> favorite are the ones when you uh. You dangle your feet because there's no sort of no risks with that. You are encased two thirds of your body in a wall of like foam and plastic. But that being said, before we start the show, we have a great show for you on hand. We have uh, talks about the NFL and what uh, Roger Goodell has done with the Ray Rice scenario of a little uh, of who done it because that's a clue. Everyone's pointing fingers at each other. We'll have our track correspondent, Ian Lutz, later on the show. And we'll talk yeah. and break down the start of the NASCAR Sprint Cup Series Chase, the new playoff format. But we'll immediately delve right into it with um, our weekly conversation. Before we do, I want to give a shout-out to AU Athletics because our men's soccer team, who's playing right now, they upset the number one team in the nation, the UCLA Bruins, last week. Which, uh, last Friday after the show, because you actually texted me that, B-Flow, uh, when we found out that American got single-handedly one of the biggest wins in program history. That's right. And uh, now, uh, the uh, the soccer, cl- soccer team, they are now ranked 
in the uh, AP rankings. So uh, how about that? Top 25. I know. Yeah, and also another Patriot League team, Navy, upset Maryland that same weekend. So a rare shout-out to the entire Patriot League, not just AU Athletics. But also, but for our weekly conversation, we give a shout-out to the field hockey team as we sat down with field hockey head coach Steve Jennings. All right, he is uh, head field hockey coach of American University, Steve Jennings, and leading his team to hopefully defending the Patriot League championship as they are set to take on Towson this Saturday and Drexel on Sunday in the Terrapin Invitational you're not playing um, UMD this weekend? No, we'd never play them at their tournament because we always have a match in the regular season uh, that we do home and away. So uh, we always set it up so we end up both playing two teams from typically outside of the area and save our matchup for sometime later in the year. Is it always a hard matchup against Maryland? Because at the end of the day, you know, in, in sports in general, it, this, it's that old saying of they're just human, they're easily beatable. But what is it about you personally playing Maryland and what makes them such a hard team to beat? Well, they have great coaching. They always have tremendous players year after year in their system. And uh, they just go out and have a a real sort of skillful uh, and tactical championship mentality. So it's very challenging, and we actually really enjoy the matches every year. We have incredibly competitive ones, even though they've been on a a far greater winning streak against us than than we've had success against them. But it's always been a great match, and we look forward to it every year. Your team started off well so far this year, 3-1 overall record and three consecutive shutouts. People always ask coaches what's the difference between this team and and last year's team. But interesting enough, watching the game against St. Joe's, your starting lineup, all but one player was either a senior or a freshman. And you as a coach, you really like sort of putting rookies per se onto the big stage at, at an early age in their collegiate career. Yeah, we don't have any problem with that. We, uh, we run a meritocracy, so if somebody's <laughs> skillful enough and ready to go, uh, comes in fit and has a great understanding of the game, then they're going to get their way into the game, whether it's as a starter or as a, a primary reserve. Uh, we do actually have a large group of people in the, the junior class uh, that are playing on a, a forward line rotation, and we actually they could quite easily be a, a starting group uh, and switch out with, with the other crew. So it's uh, more of a sort of a ice hockey line shift for the forward line. And then we have a, uh, a very strong uh, sophomore that was actually out with knee surgery. So she'll be uh, back in the starting lineup hopefully this weekend. How's the senior core doing? It's, this is a, a senior core that's really been through a lot of, of sort of the, uh, the peaks and valleys of the field hockey season. Yeah, but so far, uh, is there clearly you know, definite leaders on the field with you know Grace and Carly and Katie? Yeah, for sure. And Beck's in there too. They're uh, phenomenal players and great leaders, and they've uh, had a real sort of three years for the majority of them in terms of being starters. Uh, and Katie's been somebody who on the forward line's been uh, getting significant minutes for her entire career. So they know what to expect. Uh, they know how to rise the level, raise the level of their game at the critical moments, and they know really what our culture is all about. So they've been a tremendous force so far this year. What about Kate McBeath? Uh, first year starting, sitting behind uh, Steph Burry and Ashley Delacera. How is she uh, confidence-wise in, in, the, uh, in the cage? 
she's been doing a great job. Had a little bit of a rocky start against Richmond. I think our our whole team did there in the second half. Uh, but she's been phenomenal uh, since then. And like anything, you know, you need to get your feet wet and have the full pressure of what it's like to start matches early off in the year and have sort of everybody looking at you to be the, the anchor of the defense. And I think her performance of the last three games has been phenomenal. So uh, we're really happy with what she's doing, and I think she's bringing a, an awful lot of energy and uh, poise to the position. And you mentioned the uh, hockey style of, of rotation. Are you a big big hockey fan, ice hockey fan? Uh, I'm a huge fan of basically all sports, and ice hockey is certainly one of them. Do you use any sort of ice hockey tactics in field hockey other than the line change? Uh, you know, probably sort of in a unconscious way, yes, although I don't think that we can do it directly simply because the, the numbers on the ice or the field and then the spacing on the our field is so different. But uh, we certainly look to try to, to steal any little bit of advantage that we can, whether it's something that's in team building or in a tactical sense from any sport or any coach anywhere. What was the first thing you said to your your team, this new group of of incoming freshmen, knowing that the bar is set pretty high, and then already within the first four games, you guys are are back in the you know top twenty rankings, already have upset someone in the top ten, much like what you did last year. What was the first thing you said to them? They're preparing because you said you mentioned at Richmond it was a rocky start. Any uh, what were the motivational words that you uh, you said to them? Well, our our big thing for the year in our first meeting was talking about embracing change and really uh, sort of risking things, dealing with failure, not having failure be something that cripples us but actually emboldens us and prepares us for better things. So we just want them to be able to adapt, be flexible, be open to change, and that really is a growth mentality, a growth mindset. And whenever you have that, I think you can deal with things that happen along the way that aren't perfect. And unfortunately, I think a lot of times players, coaches, teams really dream of perfection, and we're trying to actually embrace the fact that we're going to have tons of uh, failures along the way. But what we're really hoping for is that we learn from those uh, failures and we grow and they don't end up being actually really debilitating, that we can manage them within the course of a practice, manage them within the course of a game, and ultimately learn a lot more and be much more uh, strong and resilient for it. So I think that game was a great example because we were able to turn it around with a, a day of practice, a day of talking, and we went out and beat a top-10 team in Old Dominion in the shutout, and then we were able to carry over that success to the next weekend. So we just want to grow and, and deal with change in a positive manner. Hey, Steve Jennings, American University field hockey coach here on Fanatic Radio. Where do you get your coaching style from? I've always been curious of that. The four years I was there, it always seemed like you were, I'd say, a sort of a mix of, of John Wooden, but then kind of a Bobby Knight in the way of uh, when, you're, when you're on the sidelines in terms of, of light, lighting the fire, but then also dissecting the X and O's of the game. What would you model your coaching style after? Or who was someone that sort of mentored you? Well, I, I really, as a player, I always tried to remember the qualities or the sort of attributes of all the coaches I had and try to piece them together in sort of a hodgepodge. So I think really I didn't ever base my style on a particular coach, but I tried to steal and learn and grow from the various coaches I had directly. Uh, and I had a number of really incredible ones. Everybody had something to offer me, so I just tried to remember what motivated or worked best for me and tried to, to put that into my own unique voice. Uh, outside of that, you know, I'm somebody who always is 
watching NCAA post-game press conferences with coaches or reading books or reading articles and just trying to learn from other people's perspectives. So uh, I, I just want to be – I love the overall qualities and characteristics of somebody like a John Wooden. I love the qualities of somebody like a Coach K in terms of trying to look at something bigger than just the, the game. So I, I certainly like those styles. I love the Zen approach of Phil Jackson and, and whatnot. So I, I'm never trying to copy anybody, but I'm trying to just – add on and augment whatever I have and try to speak with my natural voice because I, I don't think you can be effective unless you are your own self uh, and own person. If you're a positive reinforcement model coach like I, I am, you really can't go down the, the negative road because the players, I don't believe, will respond to that because it's not really you. So uh, that's just the way I try to approach every, every uh, practice and every match. Was, t- was taking your team to Europe sort of a key step in, in teaching them sort of those winning ways. I know it's special for you as well, being able to show your players that this is what the best in the world compete with. I think it was a great experience for the team for just, I mean, so many reasons. But when you get to watch the best in the world, you just learn by osmosis. Uh, They got to be in an environment that was so exciting and passionate with all the fans, and they got to really see how big the sport could be. They got to be a closer team because while all of them still had access with uh, their cell phones and cell phone plans, it was limited, and so they ended up talking to each other a lot more. They ended up sharing a lot more about each other's lives, and that sort of team chemistry growth is vital for our success this year, along with the sort of the imitation and the being inspired by the level of hockey they were able to, to play and witness. Did you have a fun time? I had a great time. That was, I, I lived over there for a year training and playing, and that was sort of one of the catalysts for my career as a player uh, and where I really grew tremendously, not only as a player but a coach and person. So I enjoyed seeing uh, them enjoy the country that I had gone to um, and just watch them take it all in. So it was really a, a great pleasure. They were tremendously uh, well sort of great ambassadors really for the, the program and for us as a university, so we were just really, uh, really so- soaking it all in. All right, and uh, all field hockey aside, because you have a couple of games this weekend. In terms of, uh, you mentioned how you you're always watching NCAA post game. Do you um, stay in touch as well in terms of the the general sports world of current events going on? You mentioned Coach K. You know, they're playing in the FIBA World Cup right now as we speak. Yep, I tried very much to read up on anything going on from the really serious to the trades, to what teams are doing and how teams are growing. So I, I try to pay attention to the sports world as a whole. Well, you mentioned to me once you're a big Washington Redskins fan. I am. What is your thought on this whole mascot debate? Because it really got big, I think, back in March, because I was still a student in American. And that was when you showed me all the... The Washington Post had that contest where they could submit logos of what you'd want the Redskins to be. You as a diehard fan, what, do you, what is your take on this whole situation? Well, for me, it's a really simple issue. I don't think you could substitute any other uh, color in front of the word skin and have it uh, come off as being anywhere near socially acceptable. I think uh, that I don't believe that anybody in the organization currently or any fan is actually racist in any way, but the name itself for me is a derogatory name, even if some people that are Native Americans themselves don't have a problem with it. 
I think it's just like anything else. It's time for for a change. I don't think it changes the history and tradition of the of the team. And I don't understand why somebody as brilliant as Dan Snyder, in terms of being able to make money, won't uh, change it so he can make a billion more. So it's a pretty simple situation for me. I don't think anybody in the end will ever remember it. Tons of different mascots have changed names over the year, and over the years, and everybody will get used to it. So. For me, I'm a, just a supporter of more positive names, and I think it'll be something that, in time, will happen. And also, does it does it hurt? Is you as a Redskins fan when D'Angelo Hall came out the other day and said that the defense is a, a disgrace and a laughing stock in the NFL? Well, I think our team has so many problems, and uh, <laughs> I don't really worry about that. I just hope that we will be able to get back to just being a really great professional organization like we were in the 80s it was an unbelievable treat i didn't know as a young person how rare that sort of uh that time was but it was a real great thrill when we were a true professional organization and thankfully and and fortunately you know we have the the nats coming on strong right now and looking like they might be able to hold up the the mantelpiece so that's the way i'm looking at it and we'll get you out here in this cuz we'll go back we'll full circle back to the coaching uh, if you were in the like the Cleveland Browns shoes, how would you handle someone like a Johnny Manziel? I'm like curious to know how the the, the dynamic Hall of Fame coach Steve Jennings would handle sort of a head case like a Johnny Manziel. I think that's a tough question. I, I enjoy coaching women, and I don't think I would ever <laughs> want to coach men. And part of the reason why is that almost all guys have a little Johnny Manziel in them, so it's a lot tougher. Uh, trick to be working with a team full of of guys with really huge egos and sort of a a me first versus a, a we first attitude. So I uh, I think he's a phenomenal talent and hopefully in time he'll uh, acquire the necessary level of a sort of big picture team mentality. But that is not for me to deal with, fortunately. So I'm uh, I'm lucky that they have that problem, not myself. All right, because he's got bigger things to worry about, especially his team this weekend playing in the Terrapin Invitational at. University of Maryland, Saturday against Housen at 11 a.m. Eastern and Drexel Sunday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Here's Steve Jennings, head field hockey coach at American University, joining us once again on FNAC Radio. Coach, you're welcome back on the show anytime. Thanks so much. So we roll forward here on FNAC Radio. You can catch Steve Jennings' interview on the podcast on iTunes later on bflow360.com. To the NFL we go. This whole week we have seen a monster grow a PR nightmare grow from the NFL, including what people's takes on Roger Goodell's decisions, and then the video of Ray, a new video of Ray Rice. And here is what originally the commissioner said to CBS about the uh, the video, I believe, on Tuesday when they first got quote unquote uh, first got news of this video. Well, we had not seen any videotape of what occurred in the elevator. We assumed that there was a video. We asked for video. We asked for anything that was pertinent. Uh, but we were never granted that opportunity. Beeflow, the Associated Press came out with a report that apparently the NFL was, received this video as early as April. Of course, Goodell made the decision, I believe in July, about suspending Ray Rice two games, but now he's suspended indefinitely as the Ravens fired him from the squad. What do you yep. think of all this? Uh, well, it's... It, it really is just a very incomprehensible story to where the NFL and Goodell said that they tried to get the video 
Initially, they said from, like, I think they said from the state cops, which had no, I don't think it, uh, one of them, they said one police authority, they asked them, but they then admitted that they were wrong and had asked somebody else. But so the NFL had asked for this video. Supposedly, according to that AP report, somebody in the NFL, was that me? I'm not entirely, it wasn't entirely clear what that person was. Uh, their position in the NFL. But somehow somebody in the NFL did have the video. And, and Goodell was very interviewed. He was very, he was rather ambiguous at times. Now it's come out that Ray Rice had told the Ravens now, and the Ravens should not be let off at all because exactly. they've done nothing. They, they could have suspended him. And ultimately the NFL could have suspended him six, eight games. That would have been fine, and to, except they went the weak, uh, the weak sauce route, and then ultimately it, everybody knew once this video came out that it was going to be bad, and unless something that wasn't expected was on the video, that ultimately the NFL was going to have a significant amount of explaining to do, considering it was only the CBN suspension. Now I wonder. Either was communication so bad, in, in so, it's so bad inside the NFL, where somebody did have the video and had told uh, the person in law enforcement, it's really bad, or whatever the direct quote is. How does that not go up the chain of command? Unless, and a friend of mine suggested this, somebody lower rung in the NFL decided basically to cover it up because they didn't want to put Goodell in a bad position and thus, ultimately, uh, even though it makes Goodell out to look like a fool, they'd rather have Goodell look like a fool than look like he covered up. I think that's, again, I'm not entirely certain. There's still a significant amount of questions, and including the fact that they were, that both parties were like, that we asked the casino they could have given this. Well, apparently they didn't ask Rice or his lawyers, who, did, who had to have had the video and could legally be compelled to give that video up. So it's a it's a complete and total fiasco for the NFL. It showed that whatever investigation that they that went on was uh, wholly inadequate and borderline and very much incompetent. And now the NFL is in a very bad position to where it's going to be hard to move forward until we start getting some legitimate answers from the league. Yeah, they do a very good job of persuading society with cover-ups. You know, when the concussions break, when the concussion thing broke out, the League of Denial, they were saying, oh, the, you know, the Super Bowl and the draft, pay attention to that. And now when this whole surfaced, because Ray Rice wasn't the only one, Ray McDonald played for the 49ers. Mm-hmm. And he had a domestic violence charge. And Greg uh, Hardy played as well. Exactly. So something like this happens, but then all of a sudden they're like, oh, Thursday Night Football on CBS, record ratings. They're like, they're, it's like the NFL is like a parent and we as society is like a newborn child. Something bad happens, we wave, we wave the rattle. They wave the rattle, they say, oh, look at the shiny toy. Look at the jingling keys. It's, the moral compass on the NFL is, is so whack. In terms of sports fans, it's so out of, it's out of touch. Because... They go. They continually go back to their main mission statement of and the main purpose of putting on football games. 
But between that, it's something's got to be done. What 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 needs to be done, Flo? Is it too extreme that Goodell needs to resign, or we need to, or does the NFL need to stop giving certain issues slaps on the wrist? Well, I think that not only that because this is a bad. The problem here is that Goodell and his tenure as commissioner has been known for sending strong messages for various issues um, and legislating, well, not necessarily, the, the, the commissioner having a significant amount of power and leeway, which then that reared his ugly head during the bounty game match, uh, for him to levy uh, significant suspensions to try and uh, clean up the game more or less. But the problem is the NFL has had an issue uh, with domestic violence cases in the past being um, uh, basically, well, not swept under the rug, being minor penalties instead of being significant penalties. Now, they did uh, not too long ago, Goodell basically admitted, I got it wrong, and thus we've got this new penalty to where anybody with domestic assault is uh, six games first offense, uh, full season going for uh, mind you, Jim Harbaugh, you brought, uh, uh, you brought up Ray McDonald. Jim Harbaugh said anybody that, that's involved with domestic violence, off the team. Ray McDonald gets it. Yes, he has a, you know, still uh, – but he, he was able to play week one. So the mm-hmm. NFL was really bad now. Uh, well, obviously. But – and now the problem with Goodell is that now this – because, again, so much of Goodell – power has come from him being the judge and jury and the executor. Now this has come back to hurt him significantly giving out that weak Ray Rice suspension. And now where it comes out, ultimately the video comes out and and Nora O'Donnell who did the CBS interview had a great question. She had a very good interview. She asked, "Did, did you really need to see him punching out his then fiancé now wife, for there to be a significant penalty. And why did you need to see that now instead of having to see that then where, of course, you had some people saying we don't know specifically what happened, although Rice knew, and he supposedly described it, although there have been now mixed messages over how Rice described it. Was he ambiguous? Goodell said that his teammates said that, oh, it was uh, kind of a situation where, he was in it with his wife, and the wife hit him. Now, whether or not the wife spit on him, which has been uh, now has been reported at least a little bit, but even then, there's not an excuse at all. So the Goodell was really bad. Now, and I, I was reading Bill Simmons' piece, his uh, uh, weekly uh, picks, and he said Goodell, what Goodell could do, whether he would actually do it. He would basically more or less suspend himself for, I don't know, six months, take the, his salary, donate to a domestic violence uh, organization, and basically almost flip the script. Because now you have a significant amount of people, and it's, originally it was Keith Overman who called for his resignation. Now Overman's calling for his firing, and there are a lot of other people saying Goodell needs to go as well. Whether he'll be pushed out is ultimately going to be up to the owners. And if sponsors start to drop, then you can see. And, and also, once one owner or a couple owners say they're going to be, they want Goodell gone, he'll be gone, probably, because then it'll be a, 
domino effect. But unless, so now the question is, unless it can be definitively proven that Goodell had no knowledge of the content of the video, basically um, it's very hard to defend him and say he doesn't have to get. Whether but it's also possibly will somebody from the NFL come out, a lower-rung person, saying, I did not give him the video, we did not pass up the chain of command, and he would fall at this. So Goodell is in a very tough spot, and but to be honest, he kind of put him in there. Yeah, because the NFL takes it case by case. Where there's too many players in the NFL that take it case by case because, as we've seen just from this summer, it's it's escalated out of control. That being said, what are your uh, big games to watch out for in the NFL? Well, I think in terms of the NFL this week, it's not as much uh, because now we've got the week of Thursday night football underway. Uh, there, are, there aren't that many great games on the docket. I think perhaps the best games, uh, you got the Sunday night game with the Bears who are coming off the upset loss to Buffalo. They'll be opening uh, the new Levi Stadium. Uh, the Monday night game, Eagles-Colts, that's going to be a tremendous game. Beyond that, though, there aren't that many super exciting games for maybe to watch. So there are only a few games of teams that are both one and oh, Lions, Panthers, Dolphins, Bills, surprisingly, and Bengals, Falcons, to where it's – but it's all in all not a great week for the NFL. A bunch of decent games, not some great games. But I think definitely watch out for the Sunday night game and certainly the game on Monday night. It's been a while since the best game of the week has become on a right. Monday night. I'll say my favorite game for the week, intriguing matchup, would be Seattle at San Diego because Seattle reigning Spanish champions. Absolutely. Uh, they take on a San Diego team that many are saying could sneak up and dethrone the Broncos in the AFC West. But we will come back here on Fanatic Radio to talk more sports, including what the uh, the Hawks are going to do with Danny Ferry after his comments. And Flo and I will preview the 2014 NASCAR Sprint Chase, the new playoff format. Once again, you're listening to Fnatic Radio on Blog Talk Radio. Sponsored by 1-800-Flowers. Making sure, fans, you head over to 1-800-Flowers.com. You can save 25% on your purchase of flowers and gifts when you use Visa Checkout. Use promo code VISA84 at the checkout, offer valid through September 13th through September 30th. It's Fnatic Radio. You're ready to break the pain! <laughs> the reason you wake up on game day and put on your team's cars. Fnatic Radio on Love Talk Radio. Gonna change a life for better. Don't know what it means to me, but it's hopeless, hopeless. Gotta get you home, could be with anyone. I think of what I've done, you know it all. Sometimes they own me too. What 
Morning by Phoenix here on Attic Radio. I want to give a shout-out to John in Manhattan for recommending that song. As you, too, the fans, can recommend a song for Fanatic Radio, just email us at thefanaticradio, thefanaticradio at gmail.com to play, and maybe your song can be chosen to be played on the show. Once again, we had Steve Jennings on earlier. My gardener, Ben Florence, you can listen to his interview on the podcast on iTunes, BFO360, and check us out on Twitter and Facebook. As we have NASCAR Talk and the notorious Ian Lutz, our track correspondent, coming up later in the show. But for now, let's check us out. A brief, let's go up into the attic to check out a brief history lesson with our very own Eileen Ehrlich. With history and sports, I'm Eileen Ehrlich. On September 8, 1965, Brett Campanera claimed a first for baseball as the Kansas City Athletics played him in all nine positions in a single game that resulted in a 5-3 home loss to the California Angels. The Athletics were well on their way to a 103-loss season and were desperate for a marketing gimmick to get fans in the doors. They decided to have Campaneras play a different position each inning, calling the event Campy Campaneras Night. Campaneras started the game at shortstop, his usual spot, and scored at the bottom of the first inning off a double hit by Ed Charles. The Athletics were still up 1-0 at the end of the third, and Campaneras was thrown into left field. Campaneras played center in the fifth and right field in the sixth, well on his way to completing his rounds. The Athletics put Campaneras on first for the seventh inning and finally got him to the pitcher's mound in the eighth. He finished the cycle in the ninth when he became the catcher. The game eventually went into extra innings, and the Angels handed the Athletics a loss after scoring two runs in the 13th inning. Thanks, Eileen. Make sure to check out her articles on GrandstandU.com and also check out the weekly podcast to get your daily dose of information in sports. FIFA NASCAR starts a new age of playoffs and the championship in Chicago this weekend, qualifying uh-huh. later this afternoon. And of course, right. Fox Sports 1's Bob Dillner said there is no opinions on the chase format because we just really don't know anything about it. Your initial thoughts of the playoff. Will it work, or will it just be a disaster that sends NASCAR fans? Well, well, first, what I want to do is uh, one of my uh, roommates, the legendary M. uh, Marlincraft, who's going to be in performance tomorrow, nonetheless, he uh, wants to say hello to you. He uh, sends you his regards Yes. as uh, I'm doing the the show live from our – uh, fabulous apartment in the Berkshire. But in terms of actually answering your question, I think that with this chase format, uh, I think it's really going to be. Can you leave, please? Uh, what I Shout think is uh, going to be. Yeah, and uh, the other the other moron that's in my apartment right now keeps on trolling the program. But and to actually again answer your question. I think that it's we've this uh, the chase format's been so hyped and so talked about this year because it's such a radical change in a way from what we. It's really going to be interesting to see how this plays out over. I really think what's going to be interesting the first few weeks, what is known as the uh, the I believe it's the challenger round, and these first three races at Chicagoland, uh, Loudoun, and Dover. And I think that how these races play out, because you're going to have the guys, drivers basically going for wins, and now it's going to be, 
are they going to go for wins and be willing to take all those chances? Like the top tier guys are going to run their stuff. But what's also going to happen with those underdog guys? The AJ Allmendinger, the uh, you know he's, he's on a one car team. Eric Almoro, those guys have not been really consistent front runners all year. You also have the guys that have, that have really struggled, like Greg Bissell, or well, not Greg Bissell, uh, Kyle Busch. Kurt Busch has been very inconsistent. Then you have guys like Newman, uh, Bissell, uh, who haven't really been contenders for wins either. Yeah, also have, you know, Kane has been very inconsistent. You know, he won a couple weeks ago. So really this chase, I think it's there's going to be so much going on that I really think that it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out because it's so much different than, you know, the old school chase, where the old school chase basically was, you know, run well, don't get knocked out, don't get, like, in a crash the first week, and that will basically end your chase. Now guys have a little more leeway, but not too much leeway because there's still points and only three guys can win races, or maybe one guy will win all three races. So a lot going on for the chase, and really I'm kind of excited to see how this will finally play out. Yes, and for fans, I want to give you two names that will do well in a in a format like this. The first one is obviously my boy Jeff Gordon. In terms of consistency, him. Mm-hmm. And the second name I'll say are Ben him, and the second one is Matt Kenseth, because mm. Kenseth got no people don't know this because obviously everyone is saying oh Gordon Jr. or Kislowski are going to do well because they have so many wins, but yeah. Matt Kenseth got in on points, and I think is if the old system was still intact, he would be third place in the points, which mm-hmm. shows that this team is obviously doing something right. You know, they had a, a good, solid finish at the tracks they're not good at. They had a third place at the Brickyard. They've done well the road courses. And, they, and he's done, mm-hmm. and he's proven that he can do well at these tracks. Obviously, everyone's favoring Jimmy Johnson and Brad Keselowski because those guys have run the best at those tracks this year. Jimmy Johnson's gotten wins at Charlotte, which is in the chase, at Michigan, which is a mile and a half, which is like a track in the chase. Mm-hmm. And so he's he's someone that is obviously a favorite. But Matt Kenseth. Matt Kenseth because he's been very consistent. Because the driver that takes it race by race and doesn't get in, engulfed in this whole knockout playoff format will win. The sooner the driver gets the sooner the driver gets under media fire of you know, you have to finish this spot or else you're gonna lose, they'll lose. And I think drivers that have that have kept a calm head like a Jimmy Johnson, like Jeff Gordon, like a Matt Kenseth could do well. So Kenseth, I think, is going to be my dark horse to win it. Because as soon as he gets a win in the chase, you know, of course, as soon as you win in the chase, you're through to the next round. Who's to say he doesn't come out and win Chicagoland and guarantees the next spot? Who's your dark horse to win it? I think that, you know, I think you make a great point uh, with Kenseth. I think that and then you also got to mention, and Jeff Gordon, by the way, there's a great, really cool piece on him and how he's had such a tremendous year this year in uh, this week's edition of Sports Illustrated, uh, which I, was, uh, I got the other day. I think that, you know, also strong contenders to win are, are going to be the Penske guys because you can make a legitimate case with how strong they've been, certainly of late, that they may be the organization that is the, te- the organization to beat going into this chase. As for a dark horse, it's it's an interesting question. 
Uh, I think uh, a dark horse. Uh, I have not sure either. Yeah. Think about this. Your boy Casey Kane getting the win at Atlanta. Absolutely, and but the thing with Kane is that he's been very hit or miss this year, and he hasn't been that much of a front runner, front running driver this year. Uh, and I think really you're going to have to be that, whether you be a guy that gets the win or you have the strong finishes like you mentioned about Matt Kenseth. I thoroughly agree with you that Kenseth is poised. And, uh, you know, like last year where he won, uh, won multiple chase races, he's strong at Chicago, he's strong at New Hampshire, he's strong at Dover. And I think but a, a guy I am actually going to go with once I finally, uh, you know, find my bearings, if you will. I'm going to throw out a name out there, and his uh, teammate has not really been uh, a front for wins, but I'm going to throw out Denny Hamlin. Mm-hmm. Denny Hamlin is a guy that he's had a very strong, consistent year. He's gotten wins, got at least one, and I think he could be a guy that, with how well he's been steady, he's been running a blade, that I could see him potentially also being the standard bearer for Jokic racing, and potentially may make a, a chase run. We remember the year he gave Jimmy Johnson about as tough a battle as anybody had given that ultimately lost, say for also when Jeff Gordon gave him that battle. So Hamlin has the ability to do it. He's just an off the radar. He's getting his crew chief back in Darian Grubb. I think Hamlin could be a guy that could be a dark horse and win us all as well. Yeah, because it tailors to him as well. Great tracks like Martinsville. He won at Talladega this year. Always mm-hmm. good at the mile and a half as well, like New Hampshire. Denny Hamlin and Matt Kenseth flow a nice dark horse because obviously the guys that have won the most races are clear ferrets as well. Last NASCAR question going forward. Is this the year that Junebug, Dale Earnhardt Jr., finally wins a championship? I really think he's got a strong and perhaps one of the best opportunities, certainly the best opportunity he's had, in my opinion, since joining Hendrick. And but really the best one ever since that year at uh, DEI. Forget the year where he had so many wins. He was going to be in the points league. Then he got the penalty for swearing after winning again at Talladega. But I really think that Dylan Jr. He's found the ability to get wins. He's also been very uh, very consistent all season long, and even for the last few years he has been very consistent in getting good finishes. The question was getting wins. Now of course two wins he got this year. Where Pocono, Pocono obviously is a totally unique track that there really isn't any comparison on the NASCAR circuit. But it's certainly in the shape. But I really think that Junior, and, you know, we all know how strong Hendrick is, and I think now the definitely, he's seen a little bit of an edge all season long for Dale Earnhardt Jr. And, like, he, feel, he kind of really starts to feel the pressure to win a title, and especially because uh, Steve Latard is leaving at the end of the year to join NBC Sports and their NASCAR coverage debuts next year. So I really think Dale Earnhardt Jr., this could very well be the year that he wins the title. The only downside with Jr. is if he gets down early and has mm-hmm. trouble, he is someone that takes a lot of motivation to get him back up because yeah, he, he is constantly consumed with, I want to win more races, I want to you know, be the best, which isn't a bad thing, a very good solid attribute in NASCAR. The only problem with a, with a system like this, he could do very well at Chicagoland, but the next week have a bad performance, 
And then, like I said earlier, when we started talking about this, one of the guys that starts panicking about numbers, instead of a, instead of a guy going out and worrying about just taking it race by race, which he could do, it's I don't know how much his team or the media will let him. I don't think he'll win it this year. I think he'll give it probably his best chance and get knocked out in that last round. Because the one who mm-hmm. makes, makes it through Martinsville, Texas, and Phoenix, those are going to be sort of the specialty guys, the Jimmy Johnsons, the Matt Kenseths, the Brad Keselowskis, the Danny Hamlins, as you mentioned. So I don't think this is the year for Junebug. One of his Hendrick teammates, though, could definitely do it. I'm looking forward to that. It's this Sunday, uh, Chicagoland, and then the next two, I believe, are New Hampshire and Dover. Which, mm-hmm. uh, according to Bflow360.com's predictions, you have Jimmy Johnson winning at Dover, which is probably a given. He's has like a 40% win percentage at that track. So we're looking forward to see how the uh, the playoff race uh, takes off in the NASCAR Sprint Cup Series. Let's talk some b-balls. Currently at half. Currently at halftime, Serbia is up by 15 on France, a France team that upset Spain a couple yeah. of days ago. Winner plays the United States in the gold medal game. I had my doubts about this USA team. But apparently their lowest margin of victory was against Turkey with 21 points, which, which basically makes the, uh, the thesis statement of it's not who is on the team, it is the coach. Mike Szczecki has found a way to make this team a winner. But is it a trap game if the United States plays Serbia? Because a Serbia team, much like the Lithuania team that gave the USA trouble in the first few minutes of the first and second quarter, but is the USA sort of given, uh, you know, gates wide open for another gold medal? I think that it certainly appears that way, especially now with the very surprising elimination of Spain, which n- nobody really saw coming, and rightfully so. But I think that you look at this U.S. team, you certainly have seen flaws in that, oh, it's taken a while for them in the first half of these games to get going. To, uh, to get it going, and because in a lot of these games, they've really struggled, struggled to get out to a strong start. They've allowed teams to hang around. And really, it's not until you get into that second half to where this U.S. team can really make it, you know, get out to the big lead and run away from their opponent. That said, and as you said, now with all eyes thinking that this could be the year or not this could be the year, but this U.S. now has a clearer path, a pretty clear path that may not have been there before after the elimination stage. And I wonder now, if they, the team has that mindset, can they be potentially uh, playing, once they get that mindset, not hungry to win it all, but rather, uh, but rather we're probably going to go out and win it. They could end up being surprised by, a Serbian team should they face them because the Serbs they play solid ball and they can score so they can and they don't have like big guys that would negate the lack of size in the US has but you know US has been relatively inconsistent uh, even though they've ended up ultimately won these games by the margins the US should still win it still would be a big surprise in but it could be a little. It could be. Uh, it hasn't been entirely easy. This isn't like the Olympics where they get out these enormous leads and just crush everybody in their path. I think this, there could be a little trouble on the horizon. I talked about this last week, where if they get the slow start, some of they they could potentially be on uh, be on edge to be upset. 
the big difference with the United States is whatever Coach K does in the locker room. Because the United States, we saw yesterday a game against Lithuania. It looked awful in those first few quarters. Steph Curry, Harden, and Kenneth Freed got in quick foul trouble. You know, you saw Demarcus Cousins all over the place. Guys were Clay Thompson and Steph Curry were were missing shots. Kyrie Irving and Derrick Rose couldn't buy. They couldn't buy a bucket. Then in the second half, you know, they outscored like 33 to 18 or whatever and just Uh steamrolled over Lithuania. And that was the same they did against Turkey and Ukraine because we saw your boy, the czar Mike Fratella, have a great first half coaching against the United States. For Serbia to win or at least have a shot to win, they need to hang the United States through three quarters. Absolutely. I hope that it's close in the fourth. So they need to get the United States in early foul trouble. But, of course, Coach K will probably scout them well to fix what they did yesterday. But they need to have good, solid shooting and stretch the United States defense. Because so far, the U.S. has done very well at full-court pressure and counting and uh, countering off turnovers. Other teams, though, when they have forced USA turnovers, haven't really countered. Serbia could be a team just because they run a solid half-court offense, which the USA hates. But the USA will try so hard to get out in transition and do well. And before we have Ian Lutz on the show, here is uh, some of the audio played from Danny Ferry, which gets to us our FNAC Radio Ethics Questions of the Week. You know, if you want to, like, oh, Bowling, for example, batting line is torn up as you think. Um, although he's played a lot of minutes, if you manage it the right way, he'll be fine. He's still a young guy overall. Um, but he is also, um, he's, a, he's a good guy overall, but he's not perfect. He's got some African in him. And I don't, Flo, is the sporting world going to hell in a handbasket after these recent comments by Danny Ferry? Absolutely. Um, I mean, these comments by Ferry are truly and uh, just tr- tremendously awful. Now, it is important to note in uh, the uh, the great. Uh, Agent Wojnarowski of uh, Yahoo posted a pretty uh, fascinating insider account of basically how much of a fiasco the Atlanta front office is because they have a unique ownership structure. It's controlled by the ownership piece that has like five or six different owners in it in the what's known as the Atlanta Spirit group. But the this, the fairy comments are just truly, truly just pretty awful and very offensive. I give credit to Lou Alden because he, he, when he was asked about it, he gave the, the great response of, uh, well, um, I, I don't have a little bit of African in me. I have a lot of African in me. And I'm very, it's something I'm very proud of. So the fairy comment, truly deplorable. Uh, and you see now he's taken a, uh, a extended leave of absence from the team, and rightfully so. Should he be fired? Probably, but if, as long as something is happening and where he shows immediate regret for his just terrible remarks, because we're made, uh, not, you know, it wasn't that recent, just like how the owner had that, so that really all, those, those bad comments as well. The Hawks are basically in shambles right now with the mess, which is a shame because they got a good coach and a solid team. But I think Ferry at some point, whether he gets fired or this, however long this leave of absence 
he's taking takes that it's it's very much a mess. And you're right, the whole sports world is going to hell in a handbasket. And it's it's kinda crazy that we've had all this you know big stories and controversy in the last week, week and a half or so. For the benefit of the doubt, I saw an article uh, across the Sports Illustrated Wire, someone comparing this to the Donald Sterling comment. And he said it was apples to oranges. You know, it was both fruit in terms of it was racist. But I got to say, this is worse than the Sterling comments. At least Donald Sterling, when he got the phone call that TMZ got a hold of, was in his home and was talking about, you know, he was the owner of the team. Danny Ferry, though, is a general manager. So he has the closest relationship in terms of player personnel on his ball club. And when he's calling, Lil Deng is a free agent, someone wanting to continue his career in the NBA. If you, you know, when you you hear someone, a guy you're going to be, you know, dealing day to day with, say something like that. It's, it's, It's insane. You know, it's just, it's like, wonder what these people are just, are taught from you know, fam- from family upward, just people have no moral compass. It's it's out it's out of control. You know, I hope oh, yeah. hopefully everyone that goes through this learns lessons from it because it is a mess. You know, we've seen this is the NBA has has had so much going on, and the sports world in general has had so much going. On. We've you know we've got you know court cases and domestic violence and racism it's like this it's the end of the world is coming soon yeah and it's, it's, only, it's only and it's only just a matter of time but who knows with that being said uh, we're now joined by our track correspondent and host of inside track the notorious ian lutz ian welcome back to fanatic radio how are you oh hello hello michael it's good to talk to you again so, for those of you that have not been following with AU uh, Cross Country, Ian, describe the uh, the uh, trip of a lifetime that you have just come back from. Absolutely. We, the AU Eagles, just got invited to compete at the Dellinger Invitational in Eugene, Oregon. So, Eugene, otherwise known as Tracktown USA, has been host to countless Olympic trials, NCAA Finals, and is home of the Oregon Ducks, which are actually the defending uh, indoor and outdoor uh, NCAA champions, as well as having the individual cross-country champion, um, Edward Cheserick. So we got to go out there, race the Bill Dellinger Invitational, um, which was just unreal. Was it fun? Was it fun? Uh it was more than fun. I would say it was uh, from stepping off the plane. There's a format that says "Welcome to Track Town" to the race. From stepping off the plane to the race, it was fun in a sense of building momentum. You know, everyone we were seeing Hayward Field for the first time. We were meeting, um, you know, Olympians. Bill Dellinger himself actually uh, came out to dinner with us, and Bill Dellinger. Um, Worked under Bill Bowerman uh, when Bowerman was the head coach at Oregon. You know, helped coach Steve Prefontaine, helped coach people like Alberto Salazar, um, and our head coach, uh, Matt Sensuitz. And he himself has a bronze medal. He's coached many Olympians. And so meeting a man that you're going to race the race that is named after him is pretty, pretty special. 
How was the race itself? Was it uh, was it a cha- was it challenging or was it just surreal running on you know the same facility that many of the world's greats competed on? Um, I would say it was a little bit of both. Uh, the race itself is on Pre's Trail, so for those of you that don't know, Steve Prefontaine um, in the '70s, one of the premier distance runners, went to the Olympics, got fourth. Um, everyone thought he was going to, you know break a ton of world records, Olympic records. He at one time held every American record from the 800 to the 10,000, I believe. Um, And he was just an all-around great runner. So we ran on a trail that's dedicated to him um, because he died in a car accident pretty young. So we ran on a priest trail. It's like packed mulch and rolling, not a lot of hills. So it was a pretty quick course. And obviously when you're running with the defending NCAA champion, you know, the times are going to be fast. So, Everyone got some top times. One of our guys, Nick Regan, broke into uh, the top ten, kind of shook it up and uh, ran right with the Oregon guys for most of the race and really actually picked off some pretty big-name guys uh, there at the end. How's recovery been? I believe this is your first full cross-country season since injury. How has the, uh, the comeback trail been? The, it's it's somewhat of a comeback and farewell trail all at the same time. You know, my last season of cross country as an American University Eagle. Uh, it's been this week has actually been pretty crazy because getting back into school and then like the jet lag hit me a lot harder than I expected it to. But we're racing at Navy tomorrow and I feel ready to go. So it's been it's been manageable, but definitely a little tougher than other weeks. Sad swan song, knowing that you're a senior. No, it's it's exciting more than sad, for sure. I'm ready to, you know, really see where um, not only running but post collegiate life uh, takes me. You know, uh, there's tons of opportunities that I want to explore out there, and you know, also bring running along with that. So I have no idea. Where I'm going to end up, I'm sure, after I walk across the stage, as I got to see you do, that uh, I'll be doing something. Well, speaking of something, how's the podcast been? A couple of you know, a couple of months ago, it just started as, as a small idea. You've gotten some big-name guests on Inside Track. Yeah, um, thanks. I would love to uh, shoot a little plug for the show um, right now. Uh, so... Our, my show that I do is Inside Track. We cover all sorts of uh, athletes within the realm of athletics. So that means sprinters, jumpers, throwers, runners. Um, we've had some good guys on there. You know, Matt Elliott, um, Brigitte Barrett. She's an Olympic silver medalist. Matt Elliott, he was fourth at the Olympic trials, or USA's. Um, who, who else? Coming up, we have Ben True, who is an amazing 5K runner. Um, we also have Phoebe Wright, who just finished her postseason in uh, in Europe. Later on down the line, we're going to get uh, the head of like running magazines, like Running Times, and maybe even see uh, little Matt Sensowitz on there. So uh, we're really trying to bring the best guests um, to get like good information that can help people. Uh, better their running and give some tips and get a look into these athletes' life. So the podcast is called Inside Track, all one word, and uh, you can find us, obviously, Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Twitter, Instagram. 
the Twitter handle is Ask Inside Track. If you want to suggest something or tweet us a person you want to have on. Awesome, and we'll get you out of here on this. You are. I know you. Uh, you like to stay up to date with the uh, the latest in uh, track and field technology. There uh, is uh, rumors and stories that Apple is making a watch to rival sort of Nike's Fuel Band. Are you a fan of the new Apple Watch, or are you standing by the swoosh? Um, the only thing about the Apple Watch is I would be worried that while running and sweating and everything, that you would break it. You know, Nike is by athletes for athletes. So I think I would stand by Nike in that case that they've been making some good products and we'll see what Apple does. I think they're going to be more fashionable than anything. Like the iPhone 6? Yeah. All I'm right, sticking with my in. iPhone 4, though. <laughs> Me too. Actually, no. I have, I have like I think I have the third. I have the three. I don't even have the iPhone four. I'm so far behind and all that. But whatever. He's Ian Lutz. He's American University cross country track and field uh, runner and our Fnac Radio track correspondent, as well as the host of Inside Track. Ian, thanks again for stopping by. You're welcome back on the show anytime. Thank you, Mike. Uh, have a good rest of your weekend and end of the show. Thanks for having me on. All right, once again, you can listen to Ian Lutz's interview and Steve Jennings' interview at American University Field Hockey on the podcast on iTunes and later on BFLO 360. So well, before we end the show, uh, quick little headlines to pass by. Oscar Pistorius uh, was guilty of a culpable homicide. The sentencing will be on October 13th. Of course, he could face as much as 15 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was interesting. The the best thing, the best quote I I saw about the the fact that they because uh, I believe the the ruling came out that they don't consider him guilty for or it was something that they handed down a couple of days ago. And I thought the best quote of it was from the immortal and, and the always uh, person that mentioned words Nancy Grace, who thought that the police may have tried to. Uh, manipulate the judge by hit by quote hitting on her or making making a pass at her. So the whole Pistorius thing is a, it's just a total mess, and so that, but that's still it's still going on. So uh, yeah. Well, I saw, I read something that apparently he could still. I mean, if he's if he's found you know less time, he could still compete in the 2016 Paralympics. I'm sorry, no, IOC should put their foot down with that. You will not have. You know, a, a convicted mur- a murderer in the Olympics. It goes completely against of what the Olympics stand for. Another well, interesting Another interesting thing. Roy McIlroy said the other day that that Tiger Woods and Mickelson are getting into quote the last holes of their career. Flood, you stand by the number one golf in the world, taking a shot at the USA's best golfers. Uh, I think you. I think he. I think he makes a legitimate point. I mean, the problem with Woods is that he struggled to stay healthy, and Mickelson's really struggled this year. Mickelson's a little older than Tiger. He's already in his 40s. So I still think that they're, they're still good. Golf is a game where we have seen guys get into their 50s, and then when they start playing on the, uh, the, the uh, Champions Tour, uh, which is a 50 is the eligibility. But I still think that um, – 
they both have a little something left, but I think their time, uh, more so Phil than Tiger, their time is being like the dominant guys that are always going to be in contention for majors. I think that their time in and time out, and again, more so with Nicholson because he's a little older, but also with Tiger because he's been hurt. I think that their time, you know, being these consistent year, week in, week out uh, contenders, I think they're maybe, uh, maybe done. All right, and a quick I think score update. Serbia leads France 53-39 with three and a half left in the third. I want to give a shout-out to Kevin Connors, who is commentating this game. With yeah, live from who, Bristol. Who retweeted me because he is my favorite sports center anchor. It's ba- I said it's basketball nirvana because it's good basketball. Plus, my boy Kevin Connors and Fran Priscilla are doing the game. That's that's enough of a reason right there. There you and, go. And uh, also, the, la- the last thing before we end the show, Gene Simmons said that rock and roll is dead because of file sharing in iTunes. Flo, he is the one that infamously said, I want to rock and roll all night and party every day. You just can't declare rock and roll dead. Uh, well, apparently he's been thinking that for a while. Um, I mean, it's... I mean, but the whole file sharing and stuff, that's been around for, like, 15, almost 20 years now. But, like, Napster was in, like, the mid to late 90s. So, I think that... I think that his, uh, his claims that, uh, it's, like, the rock and roll time is dead, I think it's a little unfounded, but I think it's just, quite frankly, a different time for me either. Exactly. Uh, but once again, you've been listening to uh, Fanatic Radio, blogtalkradio.com. You can check out the podcast on iTunes and the episode later on bflow360.com. We also want to give a shout-out to 100 Flowers as fans. You can save 25% on your next purchase of flowers and gifts when you use Visa Checkout. Order now at 100flowers.com. Use promo code VISA84. Offer valid through the 30th. So I'll do it for our guest, Steve Jennings. Ian Lutz, the notorious Ben Florence, I'm Mike Gardner. We'll catch you next week to remember in the crazy world of sports, we're not crazy, we're just fanatics. So long, everyone. <laughs>